Hi, this is Ian Wolfe, producer, host and writer for Diffusion Science Radio. I need your support. You can support Diffusion by downloading a free Audible audiobook from audibletrial.com science. Just for getting you to try them out, Audible will pay me a small reward. Or you could click on an Amazon link on diffusionradio.com and Amazon will kick a few percent of what you pay them my way. Please, make a donation directly with the PayPal button on www.diffusionradio.com. Diffusion, the international science radio show. We have a bouncer and the doors of perception. The good, the bad, the ugly. It gets pretty exciting. The myths, the truths. Toxicology. Astro-seismology. Magnetism. The dark side. Genetically engineered potatoes. Planetoid. Planetoid. I love that word. (laughs) (laughs) Hello and welcome to Diffusion. Sit back and relax while we inject weird and wonderful science directly into your brain. I'm Ian Wolfe. On this edition... Do-it-yourself space exploration. But first up, here's the news. Mystery Lights on Ceres. Ceres is a dwarf planet discovered in 1801 which orbits in the asteroid belt between Mars and Jupiter. Ceres is too small to be called a planet, but it's large enough to have its own atmosphere and maybe... Lots of water. The NASA robot spacecraft Dawn has just reached Ceres orbit and has been sending back amazing pictures. There's a large basin crater on Ceres and in the middle are two bright lights, one brighter than the other, like a wink. Dawn is a solar-powered electric spaceship. Xenon gas is electrically charged and then expelled by repulsion from the electric field between two metal plates powered by solar panels. The iron drive is more powerful than rockets burning chemicals, and the fuel is lighter. But it takes several days to build up speed. Dawn left Earth in 2007 and spiralled around Mars to steal a tiny bit of orbital energy for a slingshot boost to fling it faster towards the asteroid belt. After four years of travel, Dawn settled into orbit around the giant protoplanet Vesta, in 2011. Vesta is 530 kilometers in diameter and is now known to have formed at the birth of the solar system rather than have been knocked from a chunk of something older. In comparison, dwarf planet Ceres is 950 kilometers in diameter, more than twice as big. The first mystery light on Ceres was spotted from 83,000 kilometers away and caused a lot of confusion. Some people suggested that with a large basin and the light, Ceres looked like the Death Star from Star Wars. Then, as dawn reached 46,000 kilometres away, the second dimmer light came into view. No, it's really unlikely they're a pair of eyes. The bright lights could be caused by the explosion of ice volcanoes. It's thought there may be ice, and perhaps even liquid water in large bodies under the surface. Or, the bright spots could be caused by cracks, from an asteroid collision that exposed shiny ice. The problem is that ice reflects almost 100% of the light that hits it, whereas these two spots only reflect back 40% of the light you shine on them. They do not 
act like ice. It's been suggested that it could be a reflective mineral deposit of magnesium silicates, but there's no other evidence that Ceres contains any magnesium silicates. Now that Dawn is in orbit around Ceres, close-range photographs should tell us what this bright light and dimmer light winking at us really are. If the photos show a bow shape curving upwards, grinning under the winking lights, then all bets are off. You're listening to Ian Wolfe on Diffusion Science Radio. Send emails to science at diffusionradio.com. We're brought to you across Australia on the Community Radio Network and podcast over the internet on www.diffusionradio.com. Sebastian Chowie is a space engineer and the founder of the startup CubeRider, which aims to do ride-sharing for spacecraft experiments. Last week, at the Eastern Suburbs Makers Meetup Group, Sebastian gave a talk entitled Do-It-Yourself Space Exploration. I spoke to Sebastian after his talk and began by asking, what is CubeRider? So CubeRider is a startup idea I conceived of last year, about eight months ago. And what we're aiming to do is bring the cost of launch, the cost of access to space down for people to make pretty much anyone in society be able to access space. How we're doing that is implementing a ride-sharing technique for spacecraft called CubeSats, which are a very small type of nanosatellite, about 10 centimeters cubed. What we do is we fly multiple payloads, or multiple experiments, aboard one CubeSat, therefore reducing the cost per cu- uh, reducing the cost for the customer. We can reduce it by about two, uh, 50 to 75 percent. And so, what does that cost end up being when it's reduced so much? Well, the current cost is around $216,000 for the cheapest space mission. This is without paying anybody. So what we're aiming to do is get it around maybe fifty dollars to $80,000 roughly per customer. And that would be, that's just for hardware. With regards to software, we're actually aiming to fly a Raspberry Pi electronics board on the CubeRider satellite. And we want to be able to get people to upload their software to the Raspberry Pi to do experiments and to perform different things on the spacecraft. Uh, We're trying to give software access to people for space, essentially. And the Raspberry Pi is a little $35 Linux computer that fits, you know, a box of cards? Yeah, pretty much. And we want to use that as our basis to fly software into space. And whereabouts in space do they go? Okay, that's a good question. So what we want to do is we want to get this satellite to piggyback aboard a much larger rocket with a much more expensive satellite. And that satellite, our little satellite, will go wherever the rocket takes it based on the larger satellite's needs. So what we aim for is somewhere in low Earth orbit, which is around 250 to 1,000 kilometers above the Earth. And we're either going to be launching in a polar orbit, which basically means that the satellite orbits around the two north and south poles, or we're going to be launching from the International Space Station. Traditionally, $216,000 would be really cheap compared to what would it normally cost for a satellite to go up? So traditionally, satellites 
uh, back in you know the 60s onwards used to cost and hundreds of millions to billions of dollars for a space mission. Uh, you've got three components to every space mission. You've got the spacecraft design, construction, and launch. You've got the space. Uh, you've got the launch provider, uh, which is essentially flying the rocket, and you've got the mission control, and uh, that includes ground station and operations and stuff like that. So what we're trying to do is we're trying to re uh, basically bundle all of that in for the customer in order for them to have it reduced, the cost reduced essentially. Originally, you know, you used to launch much larger satellites and these satellites would cost anywhere from you know, a couple of million to hundreds of millions to billions of dollars. And we feel that there's been great effort to reduce the cost already to $200,000 roughly, but we feel that it can be re uh, CubeSat, the cost to launch a CubeSat mission can be dropped even more if people are willing to ride share. So, yeah. And if people are actually renting time on the Raspberry Pi as opposed to sending up their own little CubeSat, how much would that cost? So, we're looking at getting that down to a few hundred dollars. So, the big money, the, the, the big costs still are if you want to fly hardware, but because software is, you know, virtually massless, um, we want to basically have that as cheap as possible for people to fly as much software as possible, essentially, and to get as much software time for different pieces of code as possible on the satellite. How much time would you get for a couple of hundred dollars? That's a good question. That's a, no, that's a good question. And I can answer that by basing it off uh, previous satellite operators and how much they charged. So there are a few satellite companies in the US that charged about... $80 every five minutes, which is a bit expensive. And what we're trying to do is get it, hopefully drop it down a little bit more to about a few hundred dollars for about half an hour to an hour or something like that. So that's the kind of cost we're looking at. Uh, that's the kind of times we're looking at as well. So where would people go to learn how to write code that could run on a CubeSat? So there are a number of different places. Uh, ArduSat online has released a lot of code to program in Arduino for spacecraft. So we've also got another website called DIY Space Exploration, which is really interesting. They basically promote exactly what it says, DIY Space Exploration. And there are a few other sort of websites that sort of help promote it, but there's nothing really that strings it all together. So this is ex there's no sort of like spacecraft missions for dummies. And I think that's sort of what's missing. I think once we get that, then it'll be really easy for people to replicate their own missions and really just have fun with it, I think. Is there any way people can look online to see the results of CubeSats that are already up there? There are a few places, but the best way to sort of find out what's been happening with CubeSats is probably through Google Scholar, actually, because most of the CubeSat missions have been academic so far. There are a few other missions that have been commercial in nature, and they are missions like Planet Lab's mission, Southern Star's mission. CubeSats are a 10 centimeter cubed size satellite, so they're quite small. They're in the nano satellite range. So you've got you know, regular satellites, which are massive. Then you've got microsatellites, which are, I think are under 50 kilos. Then you've got nano satellites. I think they're under 10 kilos to be to, off the top of my head I'm pretty sure they're under 10 kilos and you've got Pico and Femto as well which are just ridiculously small and they're the pocket cubes and then the Femto satellites are like the really really small essentially just PCBs in space so they're the type of satellites that you have
and they're the different sizes. Because you were talking about one that had a tape measure as an aerial? Yes, uh, I really like that, um, just because it sort of illustrates how cheaply these satellites can be made if you're on a budget. So there was a CubeSat, and you can actually find it. If you just type in CubeSat with tape measure antenna, you'll be able to find lots of them. And uh, basically what it is, it's, they've literally just stuck an, uh, a tape measure on the correct size to communicate uh, to ground stations on Earth. The reason why they've done this is because tape measures are very flexible, so they can be wrapped around the satellite when they're actually being launched and stowed, and when they're out, they'll just start to flip out and actually expand to their natural size. And what sort of uses are people putting the CubeSats and the NanoSats and these little programs running on Raspberry Pis and things? What are they doing in space? Okay, so there are lots of different things at the moment that people are trying to do with CubeSats. CubeSats in space industry terms are still fairly new technology. They're only two decades old, so there's been a lot of testing, a lot of trial and error, a lot of technology demonstrations to do with CubeSats. Mainly, CubeSats are used for currently for scientific research. A lot of universities love them because they can actually start to do you know, affordable space missions. And secondly, they're used in a lot of commercial aspects. So Earth imaging is a really big one. If you build a CubeSat, you can probably stick a camera on it and take some really incredible photos. You've also got different types of scientific experiments. You've got engineering testing, so materials testing you can do. You've got materials testing. You've also got uh, subsystem testing. So basically, there are eight fundamental um, subsystems to any spacecraft. I won't bore you with listing them, but basically, people design new, better, more innovative versions of these spacecraft subsystems for CubeSats, and if you want to test them, you can test them on a CubeSat, obviously. So there are a few different things, but a lot of research has been done to exactly what kind of useful missions a CubeSat could do, because they're still such a very small size. So everything relies on reducing the actual amount of... Uh, increasing the actual amount of space available by reducing the amount of componentry, the size of the componentry, essentially. And mobile phone technology surely helped that. Yes, it did actually. So NASA has recently, in the past few years, launched three CubeSats called Alexander, Graham and Bell, and they all have the entire inside of the satellite is pretty much exclusively comprised of smartphone components. I think they used a Google Nexus. I can't remember off the top of my head. But they used a smartphone that the processor was used in the satellite. Pretty much everything was used in that satellite, including the camera to actually do imaging. So they were actually doing really cool things with that. And they're looking at trying to use even more commonly available technology to make space components of, uh, from because it's just a lot more cheaper. They've also found over the, you know, over the years of actually using CubeSats is that you don't need radiation-hardened equipment anymore. You can start using commercial off-the-shelf technology, so stuff you find at any electronic store almost. So when will the first CubeRider go up? CubeRider is set to launch in end of 2016. We're going to have the flight model ready by the end of the year, hopefully, and we're going to be doing testing for six months. We really want it to work so <laughs> testing for six months and then we're going to hand it over to our launch provider we still haven't chosen who our launch provider is going to be we're selecting them based on a few variables and the mission should last for about six months so the mission the cube rider one satellite should probably die at around june 2000 and 2017 i think yeah so launch at the end of next year mission end at halfway through 2017 and where should people look for you online? Uh, currently, you can find us on Facebook. Just if you 
at facebook.com forward slash cubewriter. And how do you spell cubewriter? Q-U-B-E-R-I-D-E-R. I think that a lot of people view space as a very big sort of scary thing to get into and they think that they can't do it because it must be too complicated or it's too difficult and you know 30 years ago I would have agreed with you but not anymore and that's because space the cost to access space and the availability in which you can get a technology used in space is really easy so I think now more than ever people should be trying to access this because it is a viable option for people that are either looking for a career or looking to send some really cool stuff to other planets. And there are plans to send nanosats into planetary. Yeah, so I don't know a whole lot about that, but uh, I know that there have been major developments in CubeSat propulsion. And the main reason you'd want to do CubeSat propulsion is to get them out of low Earth orbit, or any orbit really. So if we can crack really lightweight, really easy, cheap and simple CubeSat propulsion, then we have a really good shot at getting CubeSats to go interplanetary. And that's pretty much the big aim because, you know, sending a much cheaper satellite that can do the exact same thing as a much larger satellite is obviously a good thing. So NASA, lots of other companies and organizations have been looking at ways to actually make CubeSats go interplanetary. The other thing is CubeSats mainly exist under the Van Allen belt. So they exist under the Earth's magnetic field. So this will be another problem that needs to be overcome with regards to uh, CubeSat interplanetary flight, which is figuring out how to make sure the electronic components don't become destroyed due to space weather. Well, Sebastian, thank you very much. Thank you, Ian. That was really great. That was Sebastian Chowie talking about CubeSats and do-it-yourself space exploration. Sebastian worked for the Centre for Australian Space Research at the University of Sydney and at Sabre Astronautics before starting his own company, CubeRider. Now those interplanetary CubeSats need further exploration. So here's what I was able to find. There are plans by several groups, including New Scientist magazine, to launch CubeSats on an interplanetary mission to Europa. Europa is a moon of Jupiter that's attracted a lot of interest because not only has it got a lot of water, but the water's been spraying up from the surface in giant 200-kilometre-high plumes. Reminiscent of the plumes on Mars and Ceres. Yes, Ceres has plumes too. It would be much easier to sample the European plumes for signs of alien life than to land and drill down through the ice. Europa was discovered by Galileo in 1610. Before going to Europa, there's a few other interplanetary CubeSat missions first. The European Space Agency have invited people to submit ideas for CubeSats to take a ride with an Asteroid Impact Mission, launching in 2020. The Asteroid Impact Mission is part of the International Asteroid Impact and Deflection Assessment, AIDA, which is tasked with investigating how to deflect asteroids that might pose a hazard to Earth. That is, they might hit us. The Asteroid Impact Mission will record data, while a separate NASA Double Asteroid Redirection Test Probe, DART, smashes into the smaller of two asteroids that are orbiting each other in order to find out how this changes their motion. You can draw your own conclusions about how this division of labour between the Europeans and the Americans was decided. The probe will have room for six CubeSats. But what about Europa? NASA is planning on sending the Europa Clipper 
which would cost $2 billion. The launch date hasn't yet been set. The European Space Agency have JUICE, the Jupiter Icy Moons Explorer mission, planned for launch in 2022, which would reach Jupiter in 2030 at a similar cost. New Scientist doesn't want to wait that long. Michael Brooks wrote in New Scientist's 6th of December 2014 issue a proposal for the magazine to crowdfund from its 4 million readers worldwide to raise the $200,000 needed to launch a CubeSat that could be launched by Iron Drive to Europa. He calls the mission Teensy, the tiny Europa Explorer by New Scientist and You. The CubeSat could be launched to the International Space Station and thrown out the door into orbit, from where it would only need to travel 500 million kilometres to Europa. Benjamin Longmire at the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor has been developing an iron drive for CubeSats and would like to launch a CubeSat to Europa himself. His team have private funding to launch a CubeSat in 2015 to test his iron drive. About a year after launch into low Earth orbit, the CubeSat with an iron drive would be capable of around 17 kilometres per second, which is fast enough to reach anywhere in the solar system in a reasonable time. Brooks also writes of an untested liquid metal iron drive, Martin Tajmar's field emission electric propulsion engine, that's more than 10 times faster with less fuel. Would CubeSats work in deep space? NASA have announced Inspire interplanetary nanospacecraft pathfinder in relevant environment, which has a mission to put a CubeSat in an Earth escape orbit to prove that CubeSats can operate, communicate, and be navigated far from Earth. That's all New Scientist needs to prove the concept. Brooks figures New Scientist could fit a 7kg mass spectrometer to analyse the molecules of water and gas from the plume, and a 4kg camera for close-up pictures of the surface. The final problem is communicating the findings from the successful mission back to Earth. A CubeSat's little tape measure antenna isn't going to reach over 500 million kilometres. Michael Brooks has the answer. The CubeSat can arrive, take all its measurements, and then go to sleep until the NASA Europa Clipper probe arrives. In October 2014, NASA announced that the Europa Clipper would be carrying some CubeSats. The NASA CubeSats will need to upload their data to the mothership for it to transmit the data back to Earth. So the new scientist CubeSat could do the same. I guess if NASA doesn't end up sending CubeSats to Europa, then the new scientist CubeSat could upload its data to the European Space Agency JUICE ship and ask it to relay the discovery of life back to Earth. I'm sure they'd agree. Either way, the new scientist CubeSat or another private CubeSat just like it, would be the first to make the attempt at detecting life on Europa, and maybe making a really big discovery. Follow at Teensy Mission on Twitter for updates on the mission. And now some Diffusion community announcements. Coming up in Sydney, making community, makerspaces and hands-on engagement. On March 20th at the Makers Place in the Italian Forum in Leichhardt, Sydney, Mel Fuller of Makers Place and Joy Suleiman of Irresistible Learning are teaming up 
to help libraries and community organisations bring what's best about maker culture to their community engagement and learning programs. Joy Suleiman will be facilitating a robust and purposeful dialogue about maker culture. Speakers will be sharing our best practices, examples, tips, networks, and lessons learned from experience. The Rockstar lineup of experts includes Warham Cheatham from City Libraries Townsville, Dr. Gareth Jenkins, Coordinator of Youth Development at Save the Children Australia, Grant Young from the National Centre of Indigenous Excellence, Alexia Estrelado, Program Manager of Deluxe Media Arts, Daniel Green from the Sydney Mini Maker Fair, James Oliver, the Digital Learning Manager at the Museum of Applied Arts and Sciences. If you're a librarian or community group member who wants to explore the world where technology and manufacturing are for all humans, come along on March 20th to Maker's Place. There'll be links to those events on the Diffusion episode page. In the laboratories of your name here, there is a modest sign. And here, dedicated scientists face the challenge. Years of heartbreaking failures and setbacks only stiffen their resolve to conquer the problem. And one day, a strange and historic accident. Uh-oh. Well, you did it again. Gee, what a mess. Oh, well. Wait a minute. Maybe... Listen. Hi, Gad. Do you suppose this freak accident... Of course. That's it. That's the answer. We've done it. After all these years, we've invented it. How about that? Oh, no, no. That's no kind of a thing to say. This has got to be some sort of a line that'll get quoted, like, uh... Well, how about this? What has God wrought? Good. Good. Beautiful. Let me get that down. And with those historic words, the search was over. From the laboratories of your name here had come the key to the secret that had baffled man through the ages. No longer a dream, but a reality was your product here. Now for the first time, limitless horizons open for the nation. A brighter future unfolded. Thanks to your name here. Employment boom. Not only in the vast modern facilities of your name here, but in factories everywhere. Geared to supply this vital new industry that is reshaping our economy and transforming the lives of millions. And that's all from us this week on Diffusion. Would you like to hear your voice on radio? Would you like to join us? We need more people contributing stories to Diffusion. You can send your contributions, opinions, congratulations, standing ovations, gasps of amazement, and donations to science at diffusionradio.com. That's science at diffusionradio.com. And please do send me an email so I know you're listening and you'd like to hear more episodes. Please like the Diffusion Science Radio page on Facebook and rate us on iTunes. 
Checking production was Charles Willock. I produced Diffusion, which is broadcast around Australia on the community radio network, including two Triple H in Hornsby, Karingai, two NVR in Nambaka Valley, two X in Canberra, and three NBR in the Mallee border districts of Victoria and South Australia. Diffusion is syndicated globally on the National Science Foundation's Science360 internet radio station and also on astronomy.fm. You can now hear Diffusion on Stitcher, radio on demand and on the go. Download the free app from stitcher.net and review Diffusion. Subscribe to the podcast on the Diffusion website, www.diffusionradio.com. That's www.diffusionradio.com. And please check the website for links and photos about this week's show. Ask your local radio station to broadcast Diffusion. I'm Ian Wolfe. Join us inside your audio device of choice for more Science Wondering next week on Diffusion Science Radio. And to take us out, here's just a little bit more of Jeff Wayne's War of the Worlds. clap eyes in us and we're dead, right? So we gotta make a new life where they'll never find us. You know where? Underground. You should see it down there. Hundreds of miles of drains. Sweet and clean now after the rain. Dark, quiet, safe. We can build houses and everything. Start again from scratch. And what's so bad about living underground, eh? It's not been so great living up here, if you want my opinion. (laughs) 